I love a transformation story. My love for them began when I was 10 years old, and my mum introduced me to a TV show called Changing Rooms. You remember that show? The yellow and the purple shirts, and they would swap rooms, and then they would decorate the other person's house, right? But it didn't just end there. I was introduced to Backyard Blitz, Beauty and the Geek. Great TV shows, high quality. Then I was introduced to movies, Princess Diaries, Miss Congeniality. It wasn't just the chick flicks, the Hulk, Spider-Man. All these movies, TV shows, one after the other, about transformation. You know what I've realised in watching TV shows and movies that are all about transformation? There's one thing they have in common. You know what it is? Musical montage. They all have a musical montage, right? Where Stevie Wonder starts playing, and a couple of minutes later, they are completely different. Every Christian is a walking transformation story where God does a mighty work in your life. It begins in an instant, death to life. But the transformation in a Christian is slow and gradual. And I hate to say it, there's no musical montages. They're like a tree growing bit by bit with winter, spring, summer, autumn. The transformation in a Christian's life is lifelong. A good example of this is the story of Jacob. We're in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, looking at the master storyteller of Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. And Jacob's one of those rare examples in the Bible where we get his complete story from before conception to the very end. Just a bit of a recap of Jacob. He's the grandson of Abraham. And the one thing about Jacob you need to know is he is a deceiver. His name means deceiver. He's the kind of person that you could never trust. I mean, he used his dad's disability to get the inheritance. He tricked and manipulated his brother with his ego and big appetite to get what he wanted. He's like a snapping turtle. Snapping turtles have a a tongue that looks like a worm that lures them in and snap. Praise on their vulnerability. That's Jacob. But Jacob's story, as we saw two weeks ago, begins with grace. I mean, after the hurt that he's caused his family, he's on the run. He's running. He's literally hit rock bottom in life and he grabs a pillow as a rock and falls asleep. And in that moment, God reveals himself in a dream, a dream with a staircase where angels going up and down. But God is not at the top. God is with him. He comes to him and blesses him and promises to give him what he does not deserve, grace. And we saw... God does not help those who help themselves. No, no, no. God helps those who know they cannot help themselves. That was the beginning of Jacob's story. But the road to transformation had just begun. We come as we are, but we don't stay as we are because God is in the business of transformation. Andy Stanley is a pastor in the U.S., and uh, he's, it says, looks at there's sort of five things that need to happen for you to grow as a Christian. They're on the screen. Five ways in which God uses to grow your faith. Let me just go through them briefly. 
practical teaching, teaching from God's Word to apply to our life, and what we're doing now. The second thing to grow you as a Christian is your private disciplines, reading the Word by yourself, praying, fasting, resting, confessing sin, these kind of things that you're doing by yourself, spiritual habits. The third is personal ministry, so using your gifts, serving others, blessing others, hospitality, all these kind of things. But those first three are what we do at church, is what we program into our weeks here at church. We, we organize them, but the last two we can't. The last two God does, and that's providential relationships and pivotal circumstances. And it's interesting God brings those two things into Jacob's life to transform him. So we're just going to look at those two things, how God brings providential relationships into Jacob's life and pivotal circumstances in order to grow him. And we'll see how we might do it in your life too. So let's start with providential people. God will place people in your life that it just so happens they're there in the right moment, the right season, the right time. A spiritual mentor that spiritual father, that mother who was there, that, that friend, that brother and sister of Christ who was there in a key moment. For me, one of them, I think of a number, one of them was Kev. Kev was there when I was a teenager growing into a young adult. And for six, seven years, he was there alongside me, got to know me, invested me. I would not be the Christian I am today without him. That was a providential person. But not all providential people that come into your life are positive. For Jacob, case in point, is Laban. Now, as we saw last week, Jacob loved Laban's daughter, Rachel. Head over heels for her. In fact, he would work seven years in order to marry her. That's commitment. But on the night that he was going to get married, Laban used Jacob's words against him. Because Jacob said, I'll work seven years for your daughter. Ha-ha, daughter. Didn't say which one. So on the night, he swapped Leah, his less attractive daughter, for Rachel. And they got married. It was under heavy veils in those days. They went to the honeymoon suite. It was dark. They woke up. Jacob sees what he thinks is Rachel. But behold, it's Leah, Right? If you're wondering where the first episode of Married at First Sight was, this was it. And it did not go well, right? But what is Jacob's response to Laban? It's on the screen, verse 25. Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Notice Jacob doesn't say, oh, this is what it's like to be deceived. Shit, this sucks. This is horrible. This is what is, my dad must have felt. This is what my brother must have gone through when I deceived them. This feels awful. He doesn't say any of that. Why have you deceived me? Have you ever listened to the sound of your own voice? Not a great experience, is it? And here Jacob is drinking from his own medicine. Here he's ever... And it is confronting. He couldn't handle it. It is no accident that God placed Laban into Jacob's life. It just seemed like Jacob was stumbling around the desert and he just so happened to meet Laban. But God was orchestrating that Laban would providentially enter Jacob's life so that a deceiver 
could meet a deceiver. God will put people into your life, friends, that will be like a mirror. And he'll do it for your own good to show you what life is like on the other side of you. And at times it can be confronting to look back and see hurt, damage, sin that you've caused others and to begin to do the work of empathy, to understand the impact of your actions. And God is doing that as an act of grace to show you you, the real you. As Hebrews 12 says, endure hardship as discipline. And that might be a person that God has placed in your life. Some of you with teenagers, adult children, those of you who are parents, you have that child that really you find hard to love. We won't name who that is. Perhaps God has given you that child for your own sanctification, to show you parts about you that you didn't want to deal with. You know that person in your connect group who really annoys you? We won't name names either. And you're hoping and looking forward to to the end of the year when they reshuffle the groups and hopefully that person won't even be in your group. Right? Perhaps in God's promise, God has placed that person in your connect group for your own growth, to show you things about you that you may want to suppress. That work colleague that really makes you angry, that's come in from a different team into your team. Perhaps God has put them in there so that to help you sanctify you in your own anger or frustration. God is placing mirrors all throughout our life, people, providential people, to expose sin and idols in our life. Why? Because God is in the business of transformation. And it's interesting, it happens in Jacob's life. 20 years later... Jacob knows he has to go back home. He has to go back to the promised land. But for all of that to happen, reconciliation with his brother Esau must happen. So he heads back with Rachel and Leah, with his boys, with all the livestock, with all the wealth that he'd acquired. He heads back but must face his brother. And it's interesting. He knows he's forgiven, right? He's experienced God's grace. But it doesn't mean past sins can just be swept under the rug. He knows he must take responsibility for what he's done. This is Genesis 32, verse 3, we see. Jacob sent messages ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, say this, This is what you say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys and sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I'm sending this message to you, my Lord, that I might find favour in your eyes. Notice the words he uses. He uses words like my Lord. He calls him my Lord. He calls himself a servant. He's using humble language. He's not going in saying, well, I'm the chosen one. You know, remember that prophecy? The younger will serve. No, no, no. He's coming in humbly. Later on, the next day, he offers gifts. 
large gifts, 200 goats and, and sheep and cows and bulls, massive amounts of gifts to him. He's making amends for what he's stolen from Esau. Blessing him with what he cheated. And he asked for favour, for kindness, for forgiveness. Friends, true repentance, when you're convicted, true repentance is not just an inward sorrow, oh, I kind of feel bad, and moving on. True repentance does mean outward action visible change, particularly when it comes to the damaged relationships that you've caused. Here, Jacob is taking responsibility. He's not blaming. He's like, well, you were like this, and you were like... No. He makes amends. And friends, whatever dysfunction... Let's think about it. Your family might be quite dysfunctional, right? Whatever dysfunction that you have brought to your family, we take responsibility for that. You can't change anyone else but you can change you. And yes, we have been forgiven, but we do need to make amends and take responsibility for what we have done. And that may be what you've cheated out of others. That may be apologizing for hurtful words that you've said, and it may be a long time ago. I mean, this was 30, 40 years, Brian. Whatever you deceived, hurt, whatever it may be, taking responsibility for what you have done and asking for forgiveness and making amends. But Esau's response to Jacob, to this message that is coming, is one that terrifies him. Because Esau responds and comes with 400 soldiers. It ain't a welcome party. It's an army right? This might not conjure up as much fear, so let me give you a modern-day example, right? Imagine if you're going to reconcile, attempt to reconcile with a family member, right, that you haven't seen for a number of years, and you hear that they're coming, but they're coming with 400 lawyers. That'll invoke fear, right? You sort of, oh, no, that's the kind of fear that Jacob is going through, right? So here comes pivotal circumstances, the second point. God knows, he's the master storyteller, what's going to happen to Jacob and Esau. He knows they're going to be reconciled, right? He knows deep down that Jacob doesn't have anything to fear. But there's one area in Jacob's life that he still needs to grow in. He puts him in this circumstance, this situation, because there's one area, this deep down sin, this idol of his, that he's been harboring for all of his life. And it's not the deception. That's just a public one. Deep down, behind the perception, deception and manipulation is his self-sufficiency. Jacob has gone through his whole life thinking he has got it. He can handle it. But for Jacob, his self-sufficiency must die. And God brings him into a circumstance where the illusion of his self-sufficiency is exposed. I mean, Jacob has worked all his life, he's worked his way out of all sorts of tricky and unusual situations, right? With Esau, with Laban, with his wives. But at the end of the day, it's just been him. But here he's in a situation, right, where it's not just him. 
His whole family is there. Everything that he's done, his career, his work, his, his, the ones that he's loved, his children are there, and they are at risk. And he cannot guarantee their safety with 400 soldiers coming towards him. He is vulnerable. He can't work his way out. He can't trick his way out. He can't control the situation. God has placed him in this situation so his self-sufficiency will be exposed for what it has been the whole time, an illusion. If God is placing Jacob in a situation like this, do you not think he will do the same for you, brothers and sisters? What's Jacob's response? We see the way he changes He prays, verse 9 to 12. The antidote to self-sufficiency is prayer. Because they are like oil and water, they don't go together. And his prayer exposes this idol of his is dying. Verse 10, I am unworthy of all the unkindness and faithfulness you've shown me, God, your servant. You notice he's humble before God. He admits his own guilt. He's not playing the victim here. It's not, well, the fault is that, no, no, I am unworthy. I'm not blind to the hurt that I've caused. But you've been faithful, God. Verse 10, he is thankful. He said, I've had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, and now I've got two camps. You know, when I started, I just had a stick, but now I have all this. And that is not my doing. It is God's. He's thankful. In verse 11, he asks, Save me, I pray. Save me from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid. He's honest before God. His reliance is not on self. Because if that was the case, why pray? But here he realizes what he should have realized all those years ago. He cannot save himself. There is no confidence in Jacob. Paul Miller, in The Praying Life, says this. He says, often we tell ourselves that strong Christians pray, and they pray a lot. And we think, if I was a strong Christian, I would pray more. And it's true, strong Christians do pray more. But he says, they pray more because they realize how weak they are. But he, God is not done with Jacob yet. It's not like he prays, And that's it. Before Jacob meets Esau face to face, he needs to meet God. And here comes the moment, friends, which I think is one of the oddest, most unique moments in the Bible. A wrestle. A wrestle that we think should have happened between the two brothers happens between Jacob and God. My wife read that reading this morning in 32, and as she was walking past me, she said, well, that was random. And it is, right? It is a very random, unusual... This is your first time in church, right, hearing that passage. You might be thinking, what is happening here? Right? It, is, it is an odd moment where Jacob meets this man and has this wrestle, this showdown. What's happening here? John Bloom is, is a Christian writer, and he helpfully describes, retells this story. And I just want to read it to you so you sort of get a picture of what is happening in this passage. You might want to close your eyes. You might just want to ponder this. As I read it to you, I'm going to read this narrative to you. So you get a window into what it was like for Jacob this night. Here we go. Jacob prayed desperately. 
O God, my father, of the God of my father Abraham, the God of my father Isaac, deliver me. You promised you would. You promised you would be there, Yahweh. 400 men are about to wipe us out. Please, I need you. Just then, Jacob heard splashing. He looked up, squinting toward the Jabbok River. A man was crossing the ford, heading toward him. He didn't recognize him. Jacob stood. Fear shot through him. Esau? No. He, he knew the, the way Esau walked. But he wasn't relieved. He knew this man was, was coming for him. The stranger stopped three feet in front of Jacob. He looked strong. His eyes were intense. Neither man spoke. Jacob felt a familiar fear, but, but he couldn't place it. H had they met before? Instinctively, Jacob began to raise his staff in defense. With startling speed, the man wrenched it away and threw it aside. Jacob was once more confused. What did he want? Then this stranger stuck a stance every Semite boy would recognize. Wrestling was an ancient martial art. This silent adversary wanted a contest. Jacob was perplexed, but he knew he had no choice. The men circled twice, eyeing each other. Then in a twitch, adrenal lush, and the two locked in a grappled combat. This nameless foe was powerful, yet Jacob was surprised at his ability to counter him. But the longer they struggled, the more Jacob sensed that this opponent was no mere man. He now placed the familiar fear. It was what he felt at every encounter with Yahweh. But he began to understand that this wrestling was somehow connected to all that lay ahead of him tomorrow. Who was this? An angel? Or was it God? Was this struggle an answered prayer? The men broke apart, each leaning on their knees to catch their breath. They shared a glance of recognition and a desperate resolve formed in Jacob. Having been, being a deceiver, living among deceivers, he'd learned that God was the only rock that could support him. The only real source of his hope was God's promised blessing. His life depended on it. Now more than ever, God was now within his grasp. Jacob would not leave him without his blessing. The stranger's attention suddenly turned to the horizon. Light was glowing over the eastern hills. And Jacob he saw his moment. Darting quickly, he seized his opponent from behind and locked his hands around his chest. The challenger tried to free himself, but Jacob held fast. Then he swung his fist down into Jacob's right hip. Jacob screamed as the pain exploded. His leg gave way, but his grip did not. He could endure the pain, but not this day without God's blessing. For the first time, the man spoke. Let me go, for the day has broken. Jacob, wincing, hard whispered through clenched teeth, I will not let you go until you bless me. Instantly, he felt the man yield. The contest was over. What's your name? The man asked. Jacob came a groan. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have wrestled with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob crumpled to the ground, grabbed his hip, wrestled with God, panting. He said, please tell me your name. The man's eyes were intense with affection. He said, why is it that you're asking my name? And with that he turned 
and crossed back over the rim of a jabbok. Now, after that experience of Jacob, I don't know about you, this, but I've, I've got lots of questions. Like, what is the point of this unusual incident? But why, why does God deal with Jacob in such a rough-and-tumble kind of way? Why a wrestle? A couple of things. God knew what Jacob needed. He didn't need another dream like the one he'd given him. God, in a visible, physical way, manifests himself so that he would encounter Jacob. But when he approached Jacob, he didn't come to give him a hug or a high five, but a wrestle. Why? Why a wrestle? Two things. Let's look at the wound. Why did Jake, God wrestle Jacob and, and wound him? Because you think about it, he's about to see Esau the next day with 400 soldiers. He's got to be in tip-top condition, doesn't he? He's got to have a good night's sleep. That's, you, you think that's what Jacob needed before facing a foe like Esau. It's like if I ever go under a knife for surgery, the one question I'm going to ask my surgeon is, do you have newborn children, right? Because if you do, I know you're not getting a good night's sleep the night before, right? And I want you to be focused, right? Jacob needs a good night's sleep. Now, God is powerful. All it takes is a little touch of his hip, and his hip's out of joint. But God was intentionally weakening, weakening him to remind him that Jacob's strength does not come from him, but God. As it were, God was dismantling Jacob's strength and rebuilding him in God's. And friends, you will go through wrestles in life, trials in life, where it feels like God is wounding you to wake you up to the illusion of control that you think you have. He may press on your job, your health, your family, your lifestyle, your reputation. And it might be very painful. But he is doing it to wake you up to the illusion that you are a self-sufficient person, that your strength does not come from what you have done, what you have achieved, what you are in control of. It always comes from God. God knows whatever his children need. But why a wrestle? Because God knows that Jacob, what he needs in this moment is comfort. I mean, he is petrified. He is afraid. He began the night dreading Esau's arrival, full of fear and desperation. But God sends comfort in a very unusual package. He knows a greater experience of peace that Jacob needs to know, comes through a wrestle. Because by the end of the night, Jacob, after the wrestle, has God's blessing, has a renewed faith, has peace. This does not come despite a wrestle, it comes through it. 
Jacob says those words, I will not let you go until you bless me, Lord. What did they mean? That is a cry of faith. He held on to God. He did not let go. Notice he's not resorting to his old habits, slippery strategies to get blessings here, there. No, no, no. He is going to God. He is seeking blessing in the right place. He is clinging to God, that God will give him the blessing. And friends, when you wrestle with God, when you go through those trials after blessing, it may feel like God is reluctant to give them to you. It may feel like that. But we cling on to God because we know there are more blessings in the wrestle than without. And the blessing that Jacob experienced was not just for him, but for all of God's people. Because he now is Israel, the father of the nation. But I tell you what, don't take my word for it. Don't take in just Jacob's word for it, that there is greater blessing through the wrestle, through trials. Look at the greater Jacob. Because there God's son, on a night in the garden, where he should have got a good night's sleep, was up all night, knowing a big showdown was going to happen the next day. And there he wrestled with both man and God. Jesus Christ, who longed to wrestle with God, take this cup from me, take this cup from me. But there wrestled all night. But he was wounded not just in the hip, he was wounded head to toe, flogged, beaten, crucified. But he did not let go of his father. He clung to his father. Why? So that the blessings would be poured out not on him, but on you. That you would have peace and security and joy and hope that only happened through the wrestle. And there Jesus was given the name above all names. Friends, Jesus went through the wrestle, this massive trial, the trial of all, so that blessings could flow. That doesn't mean that we will not have wrestles. We will. We will have hardship. God will be disciplining us, discipling us. But when we go through them, we will experience by clinging to Jesus Christ, there is a blessing that is to be found on the other side of that that we would never know without it. God is in the business of transformation. This is Jacob's story. I wonder what yours is. I guarantee you the events of Jacob's story will be quite different from yours. They're not going to have the dreams like Jacob had or the multiple wives or the wrestling matches like this, right? That's safe to say. But the moments of transformation will be familiar. It'll start with grace. For we have nothing to give God and he's everything to give us. We're saved by grace. But God will bring us providential people, people in our life, to expose you to you to draw us closer to Christ. And he will put pivotal circumstances, circumstances that we would like not to go through, wrestles that we don't really want. We think we need this, the easy path, the good night's sleep. But God will bring a wrestle into our life, a trial that he wants us to go through because the Lord Jesus Christ has been through it before you. And there on the other side of death was life. 
There through the other side of a blessing, a trial, oh, sorry, a, a, a wrestle, a trial is blessing. The master storyteller is transforming each and every one of us. And as I look around this room, there is story after story of transformation. And if God can work a transformation in the deceiver like Jacob, he can work in a story like yours, can't he? And one day, the Lord Jesus Christ, he will come back. And then the story of transformation will be complete. Because there, when Jesus returns, you will be the real you, inside and out. Perfect harmony with every single one of us. We're just swept up into God's story forevermore. Let me pray. Gracious Lord. You are in the business of transformation. Sin has ruined so much, and yet it is not outside of your power control. You, Holy Spirit, came into us in order to empower us to begin this work of transformation, bit by bit, so we can put off the old and put on the new. Lord Jesus, you were so for our transformation that you gave your very life on our cross. For the joy set before you, you endure the cross. That you know that through hardship, on the other side of that, there is life, there is blessing, there is peace, there is joy. And Heavenly Father, you will bring people and circumstances that we may at first think, "Uh, I don't want that. But you know what we need. We're your children. You're our Father. And so we trust you that even though it may be painful, that there is blessing. There is blessing. We thank you, triune God, for the work of transformation that you are doing in our life. Amen.